the people who worked uh, as uh, economists, you know, who were against inflation. They were basically frozen out of uh, the universities, etc. The politicians wouldn't listen to them. Hello there, how are you all? Any of you in Miami yet? I'm here, and with Danny and with Connor. We've just recorded our first couple of shows. It's going to be a busy couple of weeks, but I cannot wait. Also, remember, we have got our live show this Wednesday. We've got Lynn Alden, we've got Jeff Booth, we've got Troy Cross, and we've got Harry Sadduck. And if you want to get a ticket for that, there's some tickets left. Head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by RS Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today we have the last interview of our UK runner shows. We've got Rune Oscard on, and we're going to be discussing inflation. Now, this came as a recommendation a few months ago from Hodler Nort, who said we've got to talk to Rune. And so, yeah, we got him over to the UK. He's written this book, Fraud Coin, A Thousand Years of Inflation, and we get into it. And so Rune describes inflation as the most important topic of our time. And when he said that, I was like, well, really? But you know, when he framed it, I kind of ended, I ended up agreeing with him. I really think he's right. I really think this is the most important issue of our time. When you get into the negative impact it has on society and how many people around the world it affects, it's hard to argue against. So I hope you enjoy this. If you have any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Or you can jump into our Patreon or join our Discord. Okay. Going to see some of you in Miami this week. We're all going to catch up. We're going to talk Bitcoin, grab a beer. See you all soon. Good morning, Rune. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. I'm great, actually. Yeah? Thanks. And you? Yeah, good, man. Good. We've had a very good week here in Bedford. I know. I you know. heard. Yeah. You heard. Congratulations. Thank you. We all had a few too many beers. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, yes. I saw some pictures as well on Twitter. So, oh, you saw the yeah. celebrations? I did, yeah. Yeah. So... Danny here had a had a small hangover. Oh, one of the worst hangovers I've ever had. Oh, was it that bad? <laughs> I was feeling so bad. Today, I woke up this morning feeling so good. Was it actually that bad? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> Young Connor had a little nap in the car. Mm. I had a few too many, but I wasn't it wasn't too bad. Anyway, we were we were celebrating. But welcome to Bedford. You come under high recommendation from our mutual friend, sometimes foe for me, Hodler not. We've uh, clashed and agreed on things. Which I would think actually is a, a good basis for a friendship, but uh, he comes he come under high recommendation from Holland. Wow, he got in touch and said you've got to talk to Ruin. Great, <laughs> he's he's a nice guy, so I really appreciate the recommendation. I must say, um, yeah, I haven't met him that many times, but I've spoken to him a couple of times on telephone, and uh, yeah, well, you sound like he's, him. Oh, do we? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Mm. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. So for people who won't know you, Rune, um, give a little bit about your background. Okay. I'm uh, 50 years old. I live in... Uh, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm from uh, Trøndelag, yeah, and that's a region in Norway, which is in the, yeah, in the middle part of Norway. Uh, live uh, close to a small city called uh, Steinsjær, where I work as a lawyer. So um, I have quite a varied background. I've been working for the public sector and uh, in the private sector. Now I run my own law firm together with a colleague of mine. And um, I've been working also in the European Commission uh, in Brussels. And actually, when I walked uh, from the hotel to 
your place today. You walked it? Yeah, and, and it reminded me a lot about uh, Brussels, actually. It's very flat and it's green, uh, the house is... Uh, so, and that was a great period in, in my life, actually, when I was uh, living in Brussels for, for three years. I'm trying to think So I was way. very happy when I, when I walked uh, here to, this morning. So let's talk about this book. So, A Thousand Years, Fraud Coin... Let's show it up, show it up to the camera. A thousand years of inflation as a policy. Why did you decide to, decide to approach this as a subject for a book? Like, you had a lot of experience, property rights, you've been a lawyer, working in the European Commission. Um, you decided to write a book. Why inflation? Why that subject? First of all, because it's the most important subject of, of, of them all. Yeah. So, I, everywhere or within economics? I think in society. Wow, it's a bold statement. But I'm not going to disagree yeah, with you. Because money is so important for society, for civilization, you know. It's the, and if, if you don't have sound money, if you have money that you can manipulate and that has a very, a very big impact on how society is and uh, how it affects individuals as well, of course. So it's I, I consider it to be the most important subject. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, I mean, Danny yesterday interviewed uh, a man by the name of Luke Guoman. Do you know him? I've heard the name. Yes. Yeah, he's mm. worth a follow. And we were talking about inflation. We were talking about the high levels of debt that the U.S. government, U.K. government, European governments, you know, governments around the world are saddled with. We are we have a sovereign debt crisis, and. Um, and most economists I've spoken to have come to the conclusion there's two ways of ending this sovereign debt crisis is either a default or you inflate it away. But the debt ha you have to somehow remove the debt. Hmm. And I don't know what inflation is in uh, Norway, but at the moment in the UK, what are we, 11%? Yeah, I think it's 10.4%. 10.4%, and it's not come down, whereas in the USA, at least managed to knock it down a bit. What's, do you know what the <clears throat> Norway rate is? What have you got there? I'm just having a look. Um, 6.5, I think. Show off. I think the numbers, <laughs> the new numbers came yesterday, I think. Uh, and I don't know how much trust there is in the Norwegian government. By the way, I've been to Norway, and I think it's one of the most amazing countries mm -hmm. in the world. Firstly, everything fucking works. Everything works. When you I went to you Oslo... You haven't been there long enough then. Well, <laughs> I've been in the UK long enough. When I, you know, the trains are on time. Everything's clean. The air is lovely. Mm. The women are beautiful. It's a great country. And I'm going back. When are we going? Yeah. June, July? Also, also Freedom Forum. Yeah, it's in June, I think. Will you it? be there? I hope so. Yes, I, I hope you are. Yeah. Um, what's the Norwegian rate? Six point five. Six point five. So eleven percent here, and I don't know how much trust you have in your government, but we know. I know fundamentally when it's eleven point two percent, wherever it is, mm -hmm. that's the lowest they've been able to get it in the way they manipulate figures. I think inflation, firstly, is personal, so it depends on what you're buying. Um, but your experience of inflation is a lot higher than 11%. So Luke said, very casually, very casually, uh, yeah, we probably are going to, uh, they, could, they could extend inflation 10 to 20% over 5, 10, 15 years, or they might just squeeze it mm -hmm. all out in one go and probably have two, three years of over 100% inflation. And we were like, huh? He was like, yeah, very, yeah, very casually, he said, this is highly... 
highly likely. And he explained the case study of Israel when uh, they they did the same. And he said, it's still a flourishing economy. You know, it's a nice place to visit. And I was thinking, that is going to have a catastrophic effect on many, many people. And and he said it was like, it's a tail risk, but it's possible. Like, is it within the realms of possibility? He mm. said, we're definitely going to have inflation and high inflation. And, mm. it, you know, it's likely that we will contract and expand the numbers. But there's every chance we hit very high inflation. And I was just... I worry with that about the catastrophic impact it has on hundreds of millions of people. So, therefore, that's my long-winded way of saying I can see why you think this is the most important subject of our time. Mm, mm. So if someone new was listening, Rune, and they, they didn't understand what inflation is, because, by the way, there's sometimes two ways of explaining inflation. Some people think price rises is inflation. It's not necessarily inflation. Price rises can come from inflation, mm. but it's not inflation. But some people think price rises, just price rises themselves are inflation. Should we explain in the most basic form possible, like I'm five, what inflation is so people understand? Okay, like you're five? Yeah, That's like I'm a five. Challenge, but well, you want to try being five. <laughs> what, what I tried to do uh, with my book was to, to avoid uh, falling in the trap of... Uh, uh, having this discussion on, of, on semantics, you know, okay. what inflation is. So I said that basically you have price inflation, which I define, no, um, I'm sorry, monetary inflation, which I define as an increase in the money supply, that you have more money in society. And then you have price inflation, which is a general uh, increase in the prices, in the price level. And then I said that uh, there is a causality there. So you, you need to have an increase in the uh, money supply in order to have a general price increase, the price infl inflation. So, a um, Sorry, just to interrupt. A general price increase would be... So for example, say Connor over there is, is a hats, sells hats and suddenly he gets a lot of exposure and there's a lot of a demand, he raises his prices. That's not a general increase in price. That's a, a isolated based on performance. When you say general, it, you mean broad increase in the price of everything due. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't limit it to consumer goods, of yeah. course. It's uh, real estate, it's uh, stocks, uh, everything. Uh, and of course, uh, due to technological innovation, etc., some prices uh, will, uh, some goods will fall in price uh, while, while others, of course, uh, will, will increase in price. But the basic rule is that you need a general increase in the supply of money in order to have a general increase in the prices. So that's very important for people to understand that. Uh, I think that just to, to point, that those, point out those basic facts, uh, it's very important for, 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 for normies, you know, uh, for ordinary people who didn't read them a lot of economics. They need to understand this fact. It's, it's the, the most important uh, issue. See, when I was growing up, I would always hear about inflation on the news, the target inflation rate, what the rate is, and I just grew up thinking inflation was one of those things that's a natural part of a growing economy. And uh, you know, if we were if we were above inflation, that would be you know, not necessarily a bad thing. And but if we would go below inflation rates, and you know, if we went under two, that's dangerous. 
And so we had to try mm. and get back to two. So I was perhaps gaslighted into believing inflation was a good part of a healthy economy. Mm. And mm. that's not true, is it? No, no, it's not true at all. And it, it has been a scam uh, all the time, you know. Uh, uh, if, you, if you go back, uh, I would say 100, let's say 20 years, back to the year 1900 or something like that, if, if an economist said that uh, it's healthy for the uh, economy to have uh, price inflation, people would have been looking at him and why? Uh, why is that health, healthy? And then just uh, 30 years later, you know, in yeah, beginning actually in the 1920s and 1930s, that was uh, what economists uh, started to say, that you, you, you need some inflation to grease the wheels uh, of the economy. And um, I, I had to write a little bit about that transition as well in my book. I have a chapter on uh, the history of economics, uh, how it developed. And uh, I explained to, to, to people that it started with the difficulties they saw actually also here in England with uh, trying to negotiate the salaries with the workers when the prices uh, uh, dropped due to um, a stable money supply. You know, prices dropped over time and you had to negotiate uh, the wages with the workers and they were very reluctant um, in, with, with respect to accepting a lower nominal wage, uh, which might have been a higher real wage because the money was more uh, valuable. So in order to overcome those uh, difficulties, they, uh, Keynes, uh, he, he, he said that uh, it's uh, easier to, to negotiate and have a transition in, in the necessary trans transition in, in the economy if we uh, have some uh, money, monetary inflation. It sort of greases the wheels, the, the workers, they accept uh, real uh, wage decreases because they believe that uh, they uh, earn more money. And in nom nominal terms, they did, of course. So this, is the, so this, this was sort of the key thing um, within economics theory that, uh, that uh, yeah, won through. And of course, it was very popular with the politicians. They would like to have more mon monetary inflation because uh, the state was one of the first users of the newly created money. So it was a very popular, popular thing uh, uh, with respect to yeah, getting the support you know, from science. Yeah. The, the professors started to, to say that uh, inflation is good for the economy. Yeah, and uh, the rest of the story is just tragic, you know. But also for the academia, the people who worked uh, as uh, economists, you know, who were against inflation, they were basically frozen out of uh, the universities, etc. The politicians wouldn't listen to them. They became what we call in Norwegian a paria costa. Pariah? Pariah, par yes. Yeah. So what happened in the 20s and 30s uh, within academia, it was very bad for, for society. God. Uh, this show is brought to you by my new sponsor, Unchained. 
Now, if you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax-advantaged Bitcoin, and if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts, and Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one guidance, their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. Next up today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. It's a really interesting part of history that I, I really want to now read about because when you talked about the workers being offered a nominal increase in their money, but knowing for you knew for well that that meant to a lower purchasing power, it is the same scam that came up in the conversation with how the state is going to default on their massive debts. In that, uh, by by driving up massive inflation, they know that the bondholders will get their nominal value. But the uh, the purchasing power, that nominal value will crash heavily. Mm. And it is a giant scam. It is theft, if you ask Definitely. me. Um, and I constantly think about how how do I... Commu- like one of the things I think about, Rune, is how do I communicate this to people? And when I'm trying to talk to my friends, my son, my father, my brothers, I try and tell them these stories because there's so many stories like this that's around Bitcoin... I sometimes feel like I'm coming across as a nutter. (laughs) I do. I heard you say that uh, several episodes on on this podcast. Yeah. I feel uh, like they think I'm crazy. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I'm saying, like, my son's probably like, um, why is my dad the one who's always like the nutty conspiracy (laughs) one? 
But like, I know it's truth. I know it's a giant scam. Yeah. I know the government is stealing from us. You know, we know they're closest to the spigot. We know they use that spigot to win them votes. We know they make promises they can't deliver and compound the issues. And we're seeing it right now. Almost like everything I've said to you for the last five, six years, which for making this show to my friends, it's now coming true. And they're like, yeah, Pete, you're still a nutter. (laughs) (laughs) You're branded. (laughs) Branded a nutter. How do you package this up? And you have the sort of the double double challenge. You you talk about inflation as a problem and explain to them how bad it is for society and uh, that the government is a scam, basically, and, uh, uh, or more or less. And, and then you also try to explain to people that Bitcoin is the solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. What's, uh, what, what's the fix then, Pete? Well, so there's this mysterious guy called Satoshi. Nobody knows who he is. He's basically made this money that's on the internet. We call it magical internet money. And basically you buy that and that's the solution. Yeah, I sound fucking crazy. Mm, mm. <laughs> but uh, so how, 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 what was the reception? Have you, um, you must have family, because it's almost like family and friends will, will take a look at your stuff because they're your family. Did you open people's eyes with this? Did you, did you fraud coin <laughs> Orange pill, fraud pill people. Fraud <laughs> fraud pill people. Did you fraud pill people? Yes, yeah, I think so, actually. Um, um, let's begin with my partner, Astrid. Um, she, she is a, sort of, she trusts the governments, the authorities, you know. She's a conservative-minded uh, kind of woman. And she didn't know that I was writing this book. I wrote it in uh, three, four months uh, period uh, last year. She, I, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't tell her because I, I knew that she would be mad at me for writing another book. And uh, <laughs> so, um, and I think it was two weeks before I was going to launch the book. She asked me, Rune, are you writing a book again? And then I had to admit yes. And uh, of course, uh, when I, I I understand that she she was mad at me, and uh, that wasn't a good start, you know, in terms of <laughs> trying to get her to read this book. How many books have you written? I've written two books. I didn't. Um, so I didn't know you wrote. What was the one before this? It was about quick clay. Quick clay. Yeah. What is quick clay? Well, quick clay. You you know what clay is? Yeah. In the soil, it's uh, yeah. So quick clay is something we have a lot of in Norway. It's a type of clay, uh, clay that uh, collapses. And so it's, uh, it goes from a solid sort of uh, soil and uh, suddenly it just becomes uh, like water. Like quicksand? It, it's almost like quicksand, yes. Okay. Mm. Well, and there's, there's enough of, to get a whole book out of this? I'm sorry? You, you wrote a whole book on quick yeah, clay? Yeah, it's, it's much bigger than this one actually. I'm, so, I'm interested to know how much you can write about quick clay. Well, quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So. So why? So why? Why but, was she so opposed to you writing another book then? I spent a whole lot of time uh, writing the first book, and uh, but to, but to get back yeah. to your question on on uh, orange pilling or fraud pilling um, people around me. Um, I took her to a conference, uh, it was uh, a month ago. It was a gold conference, uh, but I was invited to speak about inflation. 
And uh, she heard my presentation and uh, many others uh, uh, presentations as well. And she became convinced that uh, the monetary system we have is uh, uh, not good at all. And she sort of began, I think, to appreciate the work that I've done. Okay, great. Yeah. So did she apologize? I'm sorry? <laughs> did she apologize? If if she apologized, yeah. Uh, so. Well, she didn't, but uh, <laughs> I forgive her for being mad at me. Yeah. So, what, what what do you think is it that resonated with her then? What what I think is that um, the way I explain infla- inflation in my book is by looking backwards, uh, looking at the at the history. Mm-hmm. Because I go all the way back to the Viking Age and my region, Trøndelag, in the middle part of Norway, as I as I told you, and it's it's got a rich history. And if we go back to before 1050 after Christ, then we had what we call monetary freedom, or what I call monetary freedom, at least. So people could use whichever money they, li- uh, they liked best. They could use silver coins from the UK. They could use uh, gold coins from the Arab countries. And they preferred to use uh, coins with uh, the highest possible amount of valuable metals, uh, namely silver and uh, gold. And this was kind of special because uh, most other places you already had uh, introduced inflation as a policy where the kings took control of the coinage and they debased the coins uh, over time, you know, and just just defrauded their um, their people. So what, what I tried to uh, explain was the transition from this kind of free society and to a society which was plagued by inflation in a short period of, yeah, it took just 16 years before tra- tragedy occurred. So it was introduced in 1050, and in 1066, uh, it, it became a catastrophe. Because what happened? What happened was that um, the king, his name is Harald uh, Hardrode, he introduced inflation uh, in Norway in 1050 after killing one of the uh, sort of local yeah, big guys in uh, big, big shots in, in uh, Trøndelag. And uh, I think it was he reduced the uh, silver content from 90% to 33% uh, within 16 years. And basically what he did then was probably that he tripled uh, almost the money supply in 16 years. And uh, uh, he enriched enriched himself uh, a lot uh, by doing that, probably raised taxes as well uh, at the same time. And uh, he decided that he wanted to go to England and uh, conquer England. So he took seven to nine thousand men with him. Seventy-nine. Seven to nine thousand people with him uh, to England, and uh, they were surprised by King Harold, 
uh, of England and slaughtered uh, in the Battle of Stam- Stamford Bridge. And that was actually the end of the Viking Age. That marked the end of it all. Huh. So it's it's so dramatic, you know, that our story of having going from monetary freedom to inflation to catastrophe, the end of the Viking Age, and a very swift transition uh, in in respect of culture and politics, uh, etc. And this is uh, what I think resonates with people. They can feel. Uh, what inflation is when they read my book and, and hear about this story. I think a lot of people are feeling it now, but I don't think they truly understand what's happening. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people about it. Some do. Yeah, some understand. Uh, some are uh, believing they've, what they've been told, that, oh, you're experiencing high inflation because uh, Putin attacking Ukraine, which obviously is an excuse. Um, but yeah, people are experiencing it at the moment. People are um, seeing prices go up and not enough people fully understand why it's happening, um, how wasteful the government is. Uh, we had a guy on here called Dan Tubb recently. He's been on a couple of times. Uh, and we've talked about the government receipts of a hundred, uh, one trillion a year. We've talked about, uh, their, uh, expenditure being 1.1 trillion, so they're increasing the debt by 100, 100 million a year. We've talked about them increasing the money supply that's come with that, um, and we've talked about the massive inflation we've had. Like we've talked it through, but getting this message across to like a larger, wider group of people is still mm. proves really difficult. Yeah, and I think uh, it's difficult for them to see the big picture. And that's uh, the key phrase in my book. Uh, it's uh, one of the opening pages. Let's look at the big picture. Because there are so many numbers and people, they don't relate to the word trillion. They don't understand what a, what a billion is almost, you know. So you have to explain it to them using stories. And uh, my method is to, to, to make use of stories with real people both in terms of villains and heroes and also talking a little bit about what kind of personalities the economists uh, were in order to make them real people, you know, not just someone from academia or some obscure economist. So when you, when you give the story flesh and bones, it's uh, possible for people to understand and to relate to this. So what I did was I started with the Viking Age and showed them how the transition was. And then I followed it uh, all the way up to our day and age and explained how the monetary policy affects our daily lives using uh, happenings that people knew of in in our age, um, sort of uh, that they could relate to, you know, the collapse of the economy in the 80s and early 90s, for instance, and also the great financial crisis. So by, by beginning with the very beginning and ending up where we are today in the simplest possible manner using real people and real stories, then it becomes uh, possible for them to understand. 
and very many readers appreciate uh, that uh, they tell me. How much did you cover the rise of central banks and their role? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I hear some people, they say that uh, it started in, uh, in the UK with the Bank of England. But uh, the first central bank uh, was the Swedish uh, bank. It was called Riksens Standards Bank. And it started operating in 1668. So I write a little bit about the bank uh, that was before uh, this central bank, the Swedish bank, uh, which was before. And then I write about uh, how, yeah, basically how it... uh, facilitated all the wars that the Swedish king was involved with afterwards in the beginning of the 1800s. So it's a very interesting story, of course. And what happened was that this innovation in monetary policy, it spread throughout Europe like a wildfire, you know. It's... And I think the reason why why it did so was because they saw what a little Swedish country with a mad uh, warring king, what he could do in terms of waging wars against the giant like uh, Russia and um, many other countries. Uh, and, and he made use of, very effective use of the central bank. So it spread uh, to all the other countries and the kings wanted to have this, you know, and... Uh, yeah, it was a kind of a weapon. And how did the central banks evolve? What was the original purpose of the Swedish central bank? I think the original purpose was... Uh, it was the Swedish nobility who started up this bank uh-huh. because they uh, watched how the previous bank uh, performed in terms of redistributing uh, wealth um, by using paper bills and inflation with, with paper money, you know. But um, the Swedish king was quick to just take control uh, over the bank and uh, because he wanted to, to have the revenues for himself and to borrow money, wage wars. And it's quite simple, actually. Hmm. Yeah, it was a tool. So are you a proponent yourself now of, of free banking, going back to an era of a free banking. Yeah, it's much better than the coordinated banking by using a central bank, of course. But I think if we look a bit in the future, if Bitcoin succeeds, for instance, I don't see a very big role for the banks anymore. You know more about that perhaps than than I do, but... And, and of course, what the... Oh, I, well, Bitcoin it, is a free bank. Yeah, if sort you, of, or a non-bank. Well I, th- I think of it as, well, I think of it as free banking in that uh, with free banking, you have um, uh, private institutions issuing their banknotes and you have to build certain trust around those companies but they're allowed to fail. And if they fail, you deal with the consequences of that failure. Bitcoin's kind of the same in that there's no bailout for me in that. But I, I, it, to me, it's better than free banking because with banks, I have Definitely. to trust them as a custodian. I have to trust that mm. they have 
the gold within their vaults to back their currency. I have to trust that they have the gold that backs up their bank loans. Um, and if they fail, I have to suffer the consequences because there's no bailout. With Bitcoin, again, there's no bailout. I can choose to trust, trust a custodian or I can custody myself, but there's no bailout. And that to me is the new era of free banking, which evolves beyond gold in that you, in that you can custody yourself now. You don't have mm. to write. I mean, some people may choose to use custodians. I know, not, I know people like, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. I think there's going to be people who are going to rely on custodians. And again, that's just a different trust model. But there are no, for me, it's the free banking era. It's, it's, there's no bailouts with Bitcoin. Mm. And I take that risk. Danny takes that risk. You take that risk. Mm. Take, we all take that risk. We all want that risk. Yet they're trying to choke us out anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a big threat to the system that we have today. It's, uh, it's the biggest threat they have had uh, ever, you know. So I understand that they are fighting. So have you warmed to Bitcoin quite a bit? Yeah, definitely, of course. And although I don't write that much about Bitcoin in my book, I have a couple of pages covering cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And luckily, I had learned enough to separate between the two. Um, so, um, and my conclusion when I had studied it while I was uh, writing the book was that perhaps the most uh, important thing with Bitcoin was the community itself that uh, may be able to rediscover the value of uh, monetary freedom. Um, and I did, didn't develop that idea a whole lot, but I acknowledge that uh, people are beginning to understand uh, what the monetary system is now much because of much thanks to the Bitcoin community. And that's very, very valuable. Um, I was kind of skeptical, a little bit skeptical, I must confess to the... Um, it, it seemed to me at the moment uh, when I wrote the book that it was a bit cultish. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, it is a little bit. It, it might be in, in, some, um, in, in some Bitcoin communities. But, um, so my fear was that people thought that it would be enough just to get a success with Bitcoin, that it could replace the fiat uh, money. And then we could all relax and everything was good. And uh, what if they didn't discover the value of or the importance of monetary freedom on their way? Then sort of it became a worshipping of uh, technology without understanding what it really sold, what it really gave to society. And that's something that I'm trying to develop further now because I'm writing a new book at the moment. <laughs> does, she, does she know you're writing? Yes, she does. Uh, Is she mad at you? No, she, 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 she accepts it at, at least. <laughs> um, and the book is about Bitcoin. It's called... Uh, Come on. Yeah, it's called uh, Arrow of Truth. Yes. And um, here I try to explain how important uh, Bitcoin is in terms of people rediscovering the value of monetary freedom. Um, I think it's 
we should be fatalistic in in terms of trying to th- think that Bitcoin fixes everything. It can fix a lot, but suddenly something happens, perhaps with our belief system or something like that. Uh, perhaps uh, it it might be destroyed by someone, uh, a future king. You don't know. Um, and what if we don't remember then what Bitcoin really sold for us? That would be a tra- tragedy, tragedy. And it's so important to to remind ours, uh, ourselves about what Bitcoin actually does for society. This show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest Nasdaq-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events. And they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Bitcoin being used to teach people about monetary freedom. Uh, in that a lot of conversations I've had recently, I've talked about this on the podcast, I've gone beyond trying to explain to people that why you should buy Bitcoin, why you should invest in Bitcoin. I just say, I, we even have um, on the football club, we have an article which is why you should not buy Bitcoin. Mm. And it says, yeah, there's never a good time, there's never a perfect time to buy Bitcoin, but there's always a perfect time to learn about it. And I'm always trying to say, look, even if you don't care about it, even if you think, even if you believe the fad and you think it's a scam or you think it's used by drug dealers and terrorists, whatever bullshit you believe, you should just go and learn about it because it will send you down this rabbit hole of not only learning about the technology and decentralization, but then you end mm. up you end up coming up against understanding the history of money 
or the history of government and inflation or the history of um, um, like all these different parts of like monetary and uh, political history which open your eyes into a way where well, you basically end up becoming a nutter like I am, but, <laughs> but you end up learning about all these things. You go down these various rabbit holes. And mm. you, I think that is useful for anyone, even if they don't want to buy Bitcoin. But I, there's very few people who've done the... I, I know very few people have done a deep amount of research into Bitcoin, have come out and said, yeah, no, nah, I'm not, not buying it. Yeah, we're wrong. Most people, you tend to see, I think, top-level rejection... And that's why I think it's really important to get people to go down the rabbit hole and learn about this. Mm. Yeah, you have many inroads, uh, so to speak. Uh, Bitcoin is very interesting for many people who are, you know, from the computer community and, and uh, also for economists, uh, I would uh, imagine. And uh, also those who are inter interested in political uh, science and many other social sciences. Um, so I think I think it's it's very attractive as a subject, and uh, it's beginning to become also a bit of a sexy subject. Uh, that's my feeling, that people are a little bit more open to, to learn about it. They are getting curious about what Bitcoin actually is and why we, why people promote Bitcoin, uh, etc. So I think this is the... Yeah, we're quite early, but it's very interesting times, and uh, we can learn a lot about uh, the process that we are we are um, working with now. I think it's very interesting. Shift, shift into a world of monetary freedom would be quite the shift for some people who've become used to governments bailing out anyone or any situation, whether it's bailing out the banks in the two thousand eight financial crisis, or whether it's bailing out. Uh, whether it's bailing out homeowners who can't afford to pay their energy bills and given an energy, um, uh, what would you call it when they gave energy? They, they it was gave like a UBI for energy, wasn't it? In yeah, this country, yeah. it was just like a rebate, wasn't it? An energy. Yeah, or what? Or whether it's bailing out uh, people who hold bank accounts in the US through the FDIC when a bank goes bust. You know, people are used to government fixing their problems, and I think it's because gov I think it's because government naturally thinks, well, if we don't fix that problem, we'll get voted out. Mm. So it's like this organic thing that is this bureaucracy that naturally will grow because they constantly have to promise things. To flip to a world where the government's like, mm, yeah, we're not doing this for you. You know, if your bank goes bust, it's your money lost, and mm. you have to be responsible. And I guess it's a. Uh, nationwide, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. I think that's a massive shift for people. Definitely. But I tried to, to sort of collect my thoughts about this this morning and uh, started to write down a few words about belief systems and monetary systems. Because once more, if we trace, we go back in history and look at what kind of belief system we had at the time when inflation was introduced in my area, in Trendlag, in Norway, then um, what I see was that uh, Christianization um, came at the very same time as the introduction of inflation. So it transformed our society from a totally decentralized society, also in a spiritual sense, because they worshipped 
you know, Thor and Odin and many other gods that we don't know anything about today. And the religious sort of, the worshipping, it was something which took place on each and every farm. They didn't go to the church. And when you got Christianization, people had to go to the church and the king was sort of the uh, God's representative, uh, the highest representative in, in, in each country. And that changed the belief system uh, at the same time as they got used to uh, having um, uh, a currency, a type of money which was also controlled by the state. And if you jump to the 20th century, uh, you see uh, that there is a paradigm shift in 1914 when basic, basically inflation as a policy took off. Before that, um, the, the, the government was a sort of non-existing, so to speak, in people's lives. Uh, in Norway in 1900, uh, the public sector spent 6% of GDP. And then what happened was that you saw an enormous growth of the state. So what I think happened was that uh, the state sort of replaced the Christian God. And um, the more inflation you got, the more also focus uh, was shifting towards consumerism. And that was sort of the second God that, uh, yeah, started to be worshipped in our society, I think. So that's a paradigm shift in terms of belief systems. Uh, but now after the pandemic, uh, I think people start to realize that we can't trust the state anymore. Mm -hmm. and not all people, but a su sufficiently large number of people, they start to, to, to distrust the state. And also they realize that we have all this stuff in our homes. We, we don't use a lot of it. It costs cost a lot of money to buy it. And now it's worthless for us. So I think consumerism also is, um, is something that we are about to leave more or less. It's beginning at least now. And uh, so then the question is, what kind of belief system will this be? replaced with. That's an interesting topic. And what I have uh, started to develop in my mind is that I think the basic need that we have is uh, safety. Yeah. And there are different ways that a society can provide safety to us as individuals. And my feeling is that people will begin to understand that Safety is what something my local community can provide me with. And you start to find the, the way back to, you know, your family and, and neighbors and the local community that you work together much more than we used to do uh, previously. So almost coming full circle. Almost coming full circle, yes. In, in, in our uh, history, it's a 1,000 year sort of uh, full circle. Wow, yeah. So that's my, that's my impression that we are gradually going, gradually going back uh, to that uh, state, uh, you might say, sort of that situation, yes. Is that covered in the, in the new book? 
It's uh, it's not very much covered in my new book, but uh, I write a little bit about it. Yes, I, I, I write a little bit about how religion affected the introduction of uh, monetary policies. So do, do you believe, though, that Bitcoin will play a role in that? And actually, do you know what, just thinking about it, because you said, you know, people believed in their local gods and they believed in Christianity and then they believed in the state. Is Bitcoin itself, do you think, for some people, the next thing they believe in? And that's maybe why it is a little bit cultish because because these aren't religious people. They aren't people who believe in that. They need to believe in something. You know, a lot of people need to believe in something, attach mm. themselves to something. And so this idea of this you know, peaceful revolution through Bitcoin, do you think that has become a belief system? And yeah. that's why people and are that's a bit a good, cultish. That's a good belief system. But the, the if, if, we're, odd, if we're right, if we're right, yeah, I think. But I think it's important to believe it, nonetheless. Um, although we might not be right, because we it it basically tells us to to it, it shows us some values that are important, and if we stick to those values, even if Bitcoin doesn't help us with the solution. It remind, uh, we have been reminded of some important things that might help us nonetheless. So that's my view of it. So what do you think the next 10, 20 years look like? Do you think we're going to have a breakdown of the state? A fracturing of the state? Um, World war, nuclear apocalypse, zombies? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think uh, it will break down, but it will gradually fizzle out, um, perhaps not within the first 10 years, but uh, no, I think we see peak state these days and uh, it will be... It Mark will be Moss. Nice. Yeah, peak centralization. Have you uh, listened mm. to my interview with Mark Moss? No. I um, think you would enjoy this one. Okay. So he talks about society going from swings from centralization to decentralization and his belief is that at the moment we are essentially at peak centralization. Mm. But he talks about different cycles. So you have uh, technology cycles, political cycles, is it monetary cycles? Yeah, I can't actually remember. There's like three of them, Mm. but they're on different timescales. One are on 80 years, one about every 250 years, and the other one's, I don't know, another one. He said they've all come to alignment. Mm. Yeah, so we have peak centralization at a time where um, we have Bitcoin. And so he thinks we're about to see the swing back to decentralization because mm-hmm. we always we always swing over there's always like an over adjustment and so it's the 250 year political cycle 50 year technological cycle and the 80 year financial cycle yeah there you go and he said they're yeah. all coming together at once um mark moss is an interesting guy um is there anything i've not asked you about yet that you wish i had or wish we'd covered well i think we have had a great discussion so no, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything more you want to ask me about? And, um... Well, I'm just I'm more interested in your new book because there's a lot of okay. Bitcoin books. I want to know what you're doing that's different, what you're going to write about that's different. Because the, the thing is, you sometimes you pick up a Bitcoin book and you read it like, nah, you're just explaining the same thing another way. I'm interested to see what you're doing different. From quick clay... To inflation to Bitcoin. <laughs> that's quite the journey. Yeah, that's quite the journey. That's correct. Now, um, 
First of all, I'm, I must say that I'm doing this book together with a Bitcoiner I've met. Uh, his name is Mattis Storhög, and he's a graphic designer. He's a great guy. Uh, and we are two creative souls um, working <coughs> very well together. So that's very important for me to say. Um, he provides a lot of illustrations. I provide uh, a lot of storytelling, which makes it... Uh, sort of interesting to learn about uh, Bitcoin. And uh, surprise, surprise, I go back to the Viking Age again. Uh, the reason why I'm doing this is because once you look at the social and political architecture which we had in Tönlag some thousand years ago, then you understand why we could have a monetary freedom what was the sort of necessary uh, social institutions, the legal institutions, etc. And the interesting thing is, once you compare those social and political and legal institutions with the architecture of Bitcoin, you see so many parallels. It's almost uh, uh, mind-blowing, actually. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about that now. Uh, I think I just hope that people will uh, read the, the book, book. and, uh, and uh, look into it. It's very interesting. Wow. So tell people how they can find your current book, follow you, find out about your next book when it comes out. Okay. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, of course. Uh, you, you'll get a whole lot of uh, information. Um, I, I do uh, quite a lot of writing there. And I also have a Substack sub uh, account, so you find me there as well. And uh, me and Mottis, we um, decided to, to create a new company together, and it's called Undoco, uh, U-N-D-O-Q-O. And you find, uh, find, uh, find us on the internet, undoco.com. And um, uh, the, the meaning of this word is actually the core, the essence, um, so, yeah, you can find us there. You will find the, the new book there and also the Fraudcoin book. Well, thank you for coming over. Thank you for having this conversation with us. I think uh, we'll give Hodler Norton a nod and say it was worth doing. And good luck with the new book. I look forward to hearing about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, there. I hope you enjoyed that. Please do let me know what you think. Drop me an email. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I think Rumor's great, and do you know what? His book's doing really well. In Norway, it is now the number four book in any category. I mean, he's crushing it. That's amazing. So anyway, we are here in Miami. Connor's here. Danny's here. We've recorded our first couple of shows. It's going to really be a busy couple of weeks. We've got dinners. We've got events. We've got our event. And we've obviously got the conference, which I cannot wait for. I've also brought over the Rail Bedford trophies if you want to come and see us. We're going to have a Rail Bedford stand at the bazaar at the conference. Come and see us. We've got the trophies. Come and get yourself some merch. All right. Looking forward to seeing you all. Safe travels. I'll catch you all in Miami.